0: Well, thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Happy Father's Day. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So, I love baseball. Okay, hands down it is my favorite sport. I love baseball. I love watching baseball. I love going to baseball games, but I am terrible at baseball and I've always been terrible at baseball. You might have heard me tell a story one time here where I tried out as a pitcher for a professional baseball team. That's true. I did, but here's what I didn't tell you. My fastball was 67 miles an hour. Okay? Which I think is a pretty good pitch when a batter's used to seeing 100 mile an hour fastballs zip by just put me in for one pitch when you need that strike. He's never seen a 40 mile an hour change and uh, he'll strike out. So I think I had a place for the Toronto Blue Jays. They didn't agree, Uh, but I wasn't good at baseball, and I was not good at baseball growing up. I only played two years of kid pitch, so I never played t-ball, and I never played coach pitch. I started in elementary school playing kid pitch baseball, and if you know anything about elementary age boys trying to pitch, they have no control, right? If it bounces in the dirt, it's a ball. Anything else is the strike zone, Okay? And so my first year playing baseball, I was in Georgia, and I was ready, I was pretty confident that I was going to do a good job, and uh, I started getting hit almost every game, right? Because the kid, they can't control it. So I would have bruises on my hips, bruises on my legs, bruises on my ribs, I'd get hit in the helmet, and the coach would say things like this, rub some dirt on it, right? Now I don't know if you know this or not, I don't know if you're a, uh, an MD, a doctor like I am, uh, but I don't think there's any medicinal quality to rubbing uh, dirt on a, uh, a bruise. Uh, but that's what they would say. And so what happened is I started to become really, really, really scared to play baseball. I wasn't an adult. I didn't just tough it out. I was a little kid. And so I would barely step in the, the very back end of the batter's box, and I would swing and step out of the batter's box, kind of like this, <laughs> kind of like I'm trying to catch a butterfly with a net, very effeminate, little swing or whatever. And so I was really bad at baseball. And so uh, I would strike out all the time. I didn't really contribute to the team. Uh, and they put me, therefore, in defense in right field, okay? Okay. Now, if you're a major leaguer, you're pretty good if you play right field, but right field is where you put uh, the kids that are the worst on the team. They either sit on the bench or they're in right field. If that's your kid, sorry. We just preach truth here at Parkway. But the reason that they put the kids in the right field is because there are very few left-handed hitters that can pull the ball down the line, okay? So not only was I scared to play baseball, but I'd get bored because none of the balls would come to me. So I would stand out in uh, right field and I would cross my legs and look through my mask or my glove like it was a mask. Like just look through the webbing. And then the ball would go past me and everybody's yelling at me. And I'm like, what's happening? And I've got to go chase the ball, right? Or I'd be down playing with a ladybug and the ball would go past me. Every time I wasn't paying attention was when they would hit it to me. Every other time I was paying attention, I would be bored. So I was terrible. I was not good. I didn't really contribute to the team. And I had an interesting coach. I had a coach, Coach Tom. And he would, in elementary school baseball, he would go up and scream at the umpires. He would curse them out. He would throw down his hat. He would kick dirt on their shoes in elementary baseball, okay? Now, by the way, if that's you, if you're that parent that's screaming at your kid and your kid's crying, you need to grow up, okay? They're not going to make it, okay? And they're going to hate you. But anyway, he would do that, kick dirt on their feet, you know, it was really intense, really bad example. But here's the best thing about Coach Tom. He owned a Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. And so when the team won, we got to get ice cream. Not when we lost. This was when the whole participation trophy thing was just getting kicked off. But when we won, we all got to go get ice cream. Now, here's my question for you. Did I contribute to the team? No. If anything, I made them worse. I'd strike out. I'd miss fly balls, et cetera. But when the team won, did I still get to go get ice cream? I did. I did. Now, the reason I tell you that is because what the Apostle Paul is going to say here in Romans 6 is that though you didn't contribute, and if anything, you contributed negatively because of our sin, if you belong to Team Jesus, you still get the benefits of his death and resurrection. In the same way that I was in the team... And I got the rewards of the team. The same way if you're in Christ, you get the rewards of Christ. And so that's what this text is going to talk about. Paul has been talking about that in chapter 5, but he's going to continue talking about that idea here of union with Christ uh, in chapter 6. So let's take a second to pray, and then we will uh, we'll get into the text. Okay? I want to do something a little different this morning. I just want to give you some space to pray for whatever you need to pray for. So if you need to pray for yourself, you need to pray for your spouse, you need to pray for your kids, uh, I would ask you to pray for me. Uh, I would ask you to pray that your heart would be softened, and then we will get into this text. So Let me just give you a minute uh, just to pray, however you might need to. Almighty God, we need your help. And so we just ask you for that as we dive into your word in Christ's name, amen. All right, Romans 6, 5 through 11, in the beginning of Romans 6, which Jeff did last week, is the, the primary point of Romans 6 is actually not baptism. Paul will mention baptism. That's not the primary emphasis of Romans 6. The primary emphasis of Romans 6 is going to be union with Christ's death, which is what happened at conversion. Let me say something real quick from uh, last week. Jeff did an excellent job covering this. Uh, Jeff last week talked about dying and being united to Christ. And Paul, in verses 1 through 4, uses the analogy or the imagery of baptism, okay? Let me explain baptism real quick. It's not that baptism saves you. All right? Some denominations teach that. If you grew up Catholic, Lutheran, or Church of Christ, they would say that they believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, that it's at baptism when you receive the Spirit. It's at baptism when you're forgiven for your sins and these kind of things. Despite the fact that in the book of Acts, you've got a guy called Simon the Magician who's been baptized, and he's not a believer, and you have other people in Acts 10, Cornelius' household, who has the Spirit and are already Christians and haven't been baptized yet. Paul says the way you receive the, the Spirit in Galatians 3 is by hearing with faith, and in Ephesians 1, by believing the gospel. So it's not that it's salvific. But it's not on the other end of the spectrum where it's unimportant. Sometimes coming from maybe a a more Baptistic uh, viewpoint, we have a tendency to think that baptism is kind of just optional, right? We'll get around to it when we can. Neither of those views are right baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for obedience. It is necessary to uh, walk in righteousness and these kind of things. Why then in Romans 6, like Jeff talked about last week, does Paul link the idea of baptism with salvation if baptism doesn't save you? And it's because in the New Testament, baptism is used as what is called a metonymy. Jeff mentioned this last week. Everybody know what a metonymy is? I guess not. Let's go over it real quick think back to English, right? When you were a kid and you were like shooting spitwads in English and you learned literary terms, you learned about a metaphor and you learned about a simile and you learned about a, you know, a hyperbole, exaggeration. A metonymy is where one thing stands in for something else, okay? So if we say the White House said, let me be very clear, the White House said nothing. The White House is a big building. When we say the White House said, that's a metonymy for someone at the White House, like the president. Or if I say we got to go into work on Saturday because the suits want to up our production, Suits is a metonymy for something like executive leadership. One of the most famous metonymies is this, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now, does that mean if you have a physical pen and I have a physical sword that you have the advantage? It does not. I've done a lot of sword work. I'm kidding. I'm not one of those LARPers. Uh, What it means is that words and ideas are more powerful than military might. They're metonymies. The Bible will use this. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Your eye is an organ in your head that receives light. Your heart causes you to sin, right? The Bible will do this with, uh, it'll say that a woman will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean that in addition to faith in Christ, a woman has to physically have kids to be saved? No, that's a metonymy to say something like a woman will be saved by being a righteous woman, something like that. So baptism doesn't save. It is important. Why is sometimes it linked to the idea of salvation? Because it is used to stand in for that whole conversion process. It is the symbol for faith in Christ, uh, you know, forgiveness, these kind of things. It shows physically what's already true of the person spiritually. So keep that in mind. That's the context from last week. As we get into the specific focus here, which is not on baptism, it's on union with Christ. That's the focus here of these passages. Let's look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, this is an if-then statement. It's called a conditional Okay, a conditional is an if-then statement. In Greek, this is called a first-class conditional, which means let's assume it for argument's sake. So, I've given you a lot of literary terms already, so let me just pause and explain what I mean. If I say this sentence, if you're a fish, you can breathe underwater. Am I saying you can breathe underwater? Everybody in here? No, I'm saying if you're a fish, then you can breathe underwater, okay? Or I'll give you another one. If the moon is made of cheese, then you can eat it, okay? Am I saying you can go eat the moon? No, I'm saying if it's true that the first part of that sentence is true, what's called the protasis, then the second part of that sentence is true, what's called the apodosis, okay? If the first part's true, then the second part will be true. Now listen, this is what's really important. Is the first part of this if, this if clause, true? That you've been united with Christ in a death like his? Yes. What I'm trying to say, this conditional has no hypothetical. This is not, this says something that may or may not happen. It's saying with certainty, this will happen. If you've been united with Christ's death, which we saw that we have last week, then you will certainly be united with his resurrection, which is why the word certainly occurs right through the middle of the verse, okay? It is a strong, strong, strong emphasis on your security. Let me say it this way. If you are a believer, you will be saved you can take it to the bank, it's secure, God will raise you up. Death does not have the final say over the Christian life, okay? Are you afraid when you go to sleep each night? Like, you're just not not afraid of someone breaking in, but just afraid of sleeping? No, because you're going to wake back up. Listen, the same is true when you die. That's why the Bible will call death falling asleep. The idea is that you will one day wake back up at the resurrection. That's the hope, okay? Now, You will, when you die, go rest with Christ, but eventually you will be raised. Jeff talked about that today in the theological equipping class when we talked about resurrection. The focus here is this, though. The thing that we as humans are most afraid of, death, is not as scary for the Christian. We make horror movies about it. People are afraid of dying in airplanes. They're afraid of getting cancer. They're afraid of serial killers and being murdered. Why? Because death is this great enemy of mankind. But this text is saying we have a hope beyond death, so we don't have to fear it and it's secure. It's secure. When I was a little kid, uh, I was afraid of the Joker from Batman. Okay? I'd actually seen uh, Jack Nicholson play the, uh, uh, the Joker, and I would have like nightmares and things like that as a little kid, always about the Joker. And then when I got older, I think I've told this story before, when I was in college, my roommates got a life-size cardboard cutout of the Joker, the Heath Ledger version, and they would hide it in different places of the apartment to terrify me, right? So I'd get home from work and I'd go to change clothes and I'd open my closet and boom, there's the Joker with his big scary smile and like a knife, right? Or you'd sit down to read a book and you look over your shoulder, ah, and there's the Joker. My favorite one was when I went to go take a shower, I pulled back the shower curtain and there was the Joker like with a loofah on his hand, <laughs> hanging there, just waiting. And so they would do that to terrify me. Why is the Joker scary? Because he murders people. He kills. You can't spell slaughter without laughter, he says, all right? He's crazy. He does the little want to see a magic trick and then kills the guy with a pencil. He's terrifying, okay? This text, though, is going to say, but if you've been united with Christ, that fear of death is not the same for you. Why? Because there will certainly be a resurrection. There will certainly be a resurrection. How scary would a scary movie be if when the murderer killed the person, the person just came right back to life? That would terrify the murderer. And in the same way, the resurrection terrifies death. It terrifies the enemy. If we've been united with him in a death like his, look at this next phrase, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now listen, Jeff talked about that some this morning. Jesus is not the only person to be resurrected. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. We one day will all be resurrected as well bodily like he was. Do you believe that? Is your view of the eternal state up, you know, in heaven where a fisherman never misses a catch and a golfer never hits a slice and you're just like this floaty soul light orb and there's elevator music and you're eating cotton candy clouds? Because that's not the biblical picture. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and we will be bodily resurrected. So I want to show you that because that's an emphasis here in verse 5. I want to show you some passages from the Old Testament. I want to show you a passage from in between the Old and New Testaments, what's called the intertestamental period. And I want to show you some passages in the New Testament. And here's what I want you to focus on. All of us will one day be bodily raised. Isaiah 26:19. We're going to throw it up on the screen. In contrast to judgment, it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Notice plural and notice bodies. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. You see, you thought resurrection was just a New Testament idea. Daniel 12.2, in describing the end, says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Notice there's many. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Everyone will be raised, some unto a resurrection of life, some unto a resurrection of judgment. Okay? Now, I want to give you the next one. This one comes out of 2 Maccabees, 7, 10 through 14. What is this? Maccabees, First and 2 Maccabees, and there's also a Third and Fourth Maccabees, those are not in your Bible, okay? They should not be in their Bible. That is not Scripture. So I want to just say this is not Scripture. This is a writing that comes out in between the times of the Old and the New Testament, what's called the intertestamental period. During this time, there was an evil ruler, a guy named Antiochus IV. He called himself Epiphanes, which means God's, God Manifest. Right? So he has a high view of himself. He's kind of like an intertestamental Kanye West. And, uh, and so what happened is he was over the Jews, and what he would do is he would try to get them to renounce their Judaism, okay? Uh, he would force them to eat pork. He would not allow them to circumcise their kids. Uh, he would uh, not allow them to keep a Sabbath. And so there's this story in 2 Maccabees of this Jewish woman who has seven sons, and he starts to torture them because they won't renounce their Judaism, okay? So the first son, he cuts off his hands, cuts out his tongue, scalps him alive, and then sears him to death in a huge cauldron. By the time they get to the third son, here's what the third son says. After him, the third was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. As a result, the king himself and those uh, with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his sufferings as nothing. When he too had died, they maltreated and tortured the fourth in the same way. And when he was near death, he said, One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection unto life. So not only is this in the Old Testament, this is something that we see Jews believing around the time of Jesus, even before the New Testament. This, this king is saying, Renounce your Judaism. Be unfaithful. And this guy says, Why don't you just cut off my hands and cut out my tongue like you did to my brother? I'm going to get them back one day anyway. It's awesome. Now we move into the New Testament. Look again at the plurality of resurrection here. That's for everyone. John 11, 23 through 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's saying, of course he will, silly Jesus. We're Jews. We believe in resurrection for everyone. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to raise him now. I'm going to raise him now. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and what? Did you know you have a body in hell if you are not a believer? Luke 14, 14. And you will be blessed. When? Because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay? 2 Timothy two eighteen talking about false teachers who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They can't be saying the resurrection of Christ has already happened. That's true doctrine. These are people that are saying the general resurrection of everybody has already happened, and Paul says they are upsetting the faith of some, that they're false teachers. Matthew twenty two thirty. 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That doesn't mean that we become like angels. The way that we're like angels is that in heaven, there is no marriage. There is no, you are not married and you are not given in marriage. Marriage is a temporary thing down here. And that's why we say till death do us part. Death severs the marriage, which is why someone can get remarried if their spouse dies. It's just an earthly sort of temporary thing. Philippians 3, 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul wants to be faithful, preach the gospel, live righteously in order that he may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I could give you more, but I feel like I've sufficiently beat that dead horse. Verse 6. Verse 6. We know, by the way, notice that this is something Paul wants you to know. Do you know, do you have confidence in, do you believe what he's about to say? For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, body of sin there doesn't mean that your body is bad or something like that. The idea of body of sin here is that you're a sinful person. The the sinful dominion that sin has over you, the sinful part of you, something like that. It doesn't mean that your body's bad. It means you're a sinful person. I keep interrupting myself. Let's start over by verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's my question for you in light of verse 6. Verse 6 says our sin's been crucified, that our body of sin's been brought to nothing. Then why do we still sin? Does that stress you out? This text stresses me out because this text seems to say that my sin's done away with. And I've sinned, I don't know, a hundred times this morning. What is happening? Am I not a believer? Is this text not true? Here's what I think is going on in this text. I don't think verse 6 is talking about parts of us being crucified. I think it's talking about status. Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to give you three illustrations. When we talk about the gospel here at Parkway, the gospel of the kingdom of God, how God is reconciling the world to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, We say that it's already and not yet. Zach, are we in the end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years, right? Because the end times began with Jesus. And so uh, we say that it's already and it's not yet. The analogy that we use all the time is that it's the difference between D-Day and V-Day. Think to World War II when you have the Allied troops landing at Normandy. There is a sense in which once those beaches are secure, the Allies are going to win. There's a sense in which World War II ends after D-Day, It's the beginning of the end of the Third Reich. But that's different than V-Day, when actually Hitler's kingdom is fallen, all right, and people are dancing in the streets because finally the enemy has been vanquished. We've talked about how the gospel's like that. In Jesus' first coming, that's like D-Day. A decisive blow is dealt to the enemy. And we live and march on towards Berlin in the meantime, and then eventually Christ comes back, and that's Victory Day, V-Day, okay? We've used that a lot. If you want more on that, you've got to listen to our theological equipping classes online. Now, here's what I want to say about that. That same analogy of already not yet, that same analogy of D-Day versus V-Day is true of you in your own personal life. When you become converted and you become a Christian, a decisive blow has been dealt against the enemy. The victory has already been won. But there is another sense in which you are still waiting for V-Day. You are still waiting for sin, the presence of sin to even be cast away from your life, though the power of sin is conquered at your conversion. Does that make sense? Let me give you a few more analogies. Think about... A bar mitzvah, okay? Everybody know what a bar mitzvah is? In Jewish culture, a boy is considered a man at what age? What was it? 13, correct. I thought I heard like uh, 18. No, that's our culture. Uh, 13. And he has what is called a bar mitzvah. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Mitzvah is uh, the word for commandment. He's the son of the commandment. Uh, if it's a girl, she'll have a bot, a daughter, a uh, bar mitzvah, uh, a bot mitzvah, a daughter of the commandment. So they have this, uh, this, this celebration when they're 13. Now, in the eyes, of the Jewish community, are they considered to be men? Yes. Their status is now no longer a boy, but as a man. But do they still have to go through puberty? They do. I'm a man, as they say as their voice cracks. I'm a man, as they look in the mirror and their face looks like pizza, right? Because they've got all the acne. And all of a sudden, they start be just becoming obsessed, right, with girls or whatever. Whatever it is. So they, they, Though their status is already as a man, they're learning how to grow into what they've already been declared to be. The same is true in the Christian life. We're already declared to be perfect, declared to be sinless, declared to be righteous in Christ. Sin has been destroyed, and we are learning to destroy sin because sin has been destroyed. I'll give you one more illustration. When we had uh, our first, uh, I became a dad. It's Father's Day. I became a dad. Legally, I was a dad. My status was a dad. But do I still have to learn how to be a dad? Yes, all right? And I'm still learning it. The other day we were trying to, uh, Katie asked me how much the baby weighed. And so I was like trying to put the baby on the scale and she's like, eh, she's like crying and kicking and I can't get her to balance. I'm trying to let go and not let her fall off the scale. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Weigh yourself, step off, hold the baby, then weigh yourself. And I was like, what? (laughs) She's like, for me, that was like a beautiful mind. That was like John Nash. I'm like, whoa, subtraction. That's why I just don't know. We went and uh, visited a friend in the hospital who had just had a baby, and I was supposed to be watching my son Judah, and I turn around, and he is eating a fry he found off the hospital floor. I was like, oh, man, he's got like 13 diseases now. I, could, I mean, it was, it was bad, right? So my status is I'm already a dad. Legally, I'm already a dad. I'm a dad, even before I know all this, and I grow into it. And I'm, some days I do better than others. It's still hard for me to watch both kids when Katie isn't there. Isla starts crying, Judah starts crying, I'm crying. We're just all waiting for mama to get back. We all need mom, okay? Well, you have died to the power of sin, and your Christian life is learning to be what you already are. It's learning to be what you already are in Christ, okay? Now, let's look at it again, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Look at this last phrase. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do we believe in sinless perfectionism, that you will reach a point this side of eternity where you you will no longer sin? We don't. Why are we commanded by Jesus to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, earth is in heaven, and we end up praying, forgive us, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. We never fully conquer the presence of sin in this life. What this text is saying is not that we're free from the presence of sin, we're free from the power of sin. Okay, let me give you a great quote. This comes from a New Testament scholar named uh, Tom Schreiner. He says this, Romans 6 teaches that believers are not free from the presence of sin, but they are free from its power, tyranny, mastery, and dominion. The already, not yet, I'm sorry, the already not yet character of Paul's eschatology, that's a word that just means related to the end times, Paul's eschatology shows believers have already been liberated from the mastery of sin, but they have not yet reached the eschaton, the end. They still battle the presence of sin until the day of redemption. So it's not as though we will never sin again. It's not as though we're free from the presence of sin. We're free from its mastery. We're free from its slavery. We're free from having to commit that one sin that just pops up in the middle of the week. So I've been watching a lot of uh, kid shows because I have a kid. I didn't do that uh, before I had a kid. That'd be weird. But I'm watching a lot of kid shows. And recently, uh, my son and I, we were watching Winnie the Pooh. Okay, we were watching Winnie the Pooh, some sort of Winnie the Pooh movie. And I started comparing all the different characters to different people on staff, okay? (laughs) Jeff he's kind of like Christopher Robin, okay? He's even keel. He's kind of the leader of the bunch. He always wears socks with sandals and shorts that are too short and these kind of things. He's like Christopher Robin. Tim is kind of like Piglet, okay? I think you know why. Carl is kind of like Winnie the Pooh, right? He's jolly, he's happy-go-lucky, and he loves honey, right? I'm like, Carl, where do you want to go eat? He's like, let's get some honey. I'm like, that's not a meal, Carl. That's just something you put on biscuits or something. What I realized in watching Winnie the Pooh was I am a combination of Tigger and Eeyore, okay? Manic depressive. Tigger is over-the-top extroverted. Like, he's always jumping around. He never enters a room. He just pounces on somebody, okay? He's too much, all right? He's great in small bursts, but too much of him gets annoying. But on the other end of the scale, sometimes I'm Eeyore. Eeyore just thinks everything is the worst. He's depressed, he's mopey, he's sad. And I go between those two extremes. Now, let me say this. Have I struggled with anxiety and fear and these kind of things my whole life? In some sense, yes. Do I, Am I still tempted to be anxious today? Yes, but listen what's changed. The difference is I now have the ability to resist giving in to the anxiety where when I was lost, I had to commit it. So the example that we've used before is it's like a phone ringing. Pretend there's a temptation phone, and that phone rings when you're lost, and eventually when you're lost, you will answer it. Sometimes it rings three times and you answer it. Sometimes it rings 20 times, but eventually you answer it. If you have any sense of free will, it's only after you're a Christian. When you're lost, you get to choose what sin enslaves you, but you don't have the ability to choose not to be enslaved by sin. So you can choose, I want sin to be my master, I want lust to be my master, I want pride to be my master, but you don't have the ability not to sin. When you become a believer, the phone will still ring. The difference is you don't have to pick it up. You don't have to pick it up. When that phone rings of anxiety, when that phone rings, I can't stop the thoughts from hitting me. But what I can do when the thoughts hit me is I can reshape my mind around the truth of God's word that I've died to sin and sin no longer has that power over me, okay? You will never fully conquer sin this side of eternity, but for any individual sin that pops itself up in the middle of the week and says, you must commit me, you say, no, I don't have to. No, I don't have to, okay? Look at verse seven. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay? This is the idea of verse 7. When you die, it severs previous relationships. Okay? When you die, it severs previous relationships. Right now I pay a lot of money to AT&T for my phone and I hate it. When I die, I'm not going to pay that anymore. That relationship's over. Okay? If there's a master and a slave and the slave dies, guess what? The master's not the master over the slave anymore because death severs those previous relationships. This is why in marriage we say till death do us part. When I get when I die, Katie is free to remarry. Why? Because our relationship is over. That's what death does. I've told her, marry someone happy. Don't marry, don't marry a Tigger or Eeyore combination. Marry someone. Just push me off on a raft, shoot flaming arrows at it, and marry who you want. Okay? Because there's a new. Rela- that re- our relationship's over because death severs those relationships, and so now you have an opportunity for a new relationship. Romans seven one through two. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law of marriage to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So here's what this text is saying. Ready? You used to have a relationship to sin that was like a marriage. You were married to sin. Uh, Sin was your master. When you became a Christian, you died in Christ, and therefore it severs that previous relationship. It severs that previous relationship. So now we have a new master. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think of all that that means. Not only have you died to the mastery of sin, you've died to yourself and you just belong to Christ. Dead people have no more hopes. Dead people have no more dreams. Dead people don't get to to, to determine the way they want their life to go. When you become a Christian, you've written a blank check, Jesus, to fill in however the heck he wants to fill it in. And so not only have you died to your sin, you've died to self, you've died to the mastery of sin, and you've put yourself under a new master. Freedom to sin is actually slavery, and slavery to Christ is actually freedom. Look at verse 7 again. For one who has died, look at this next part, has been set free from sin, has been set free from sin. In Greek, that is a perfect tense verb. What is a perfect tense verb? A perfect tense verb is something that was completed in the past, but has ongoing results. Okay? That's how a perfect tense works in Greek. It's completed in the past and it has ongoing results. When Jesus says it's finished on the cross to telesthi, he uses a perfect tense verb. It's something that's completed and there's ongoing results. This text here in verse 7 is saying, you have been set free from sin already, so therefore walk in it. It's not something you're waiting for, it's something you already have. Now listen, this is huge. Look at me, this is important. Whatever habitual sin you struggle with, you are not waiting for Christ to free you from that sin. You've already been set free, and you're learning to believe that that's true. He has already freed you, which means your sin is a lot more voluntary than you think that it is. You have no idea how many conversations I have with young men that go something like this: they come up and they say, "Pastor Zach," I say, "What's the problem?" They say, "I've been struggling with you know pornography or whatever," and I say, "Okay, thank you for confessing that. Have you repented? Yes. How long has it been going on?" And we start the counseling, and one of the things they'll often say is this. I just keep waiting for God to free me from this sin. And I have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Biblically speaking, you've already been set free, which means you're carrying around broken chains. You're carrying around broken shackles. But it feels enslaving. I know it feels enslaving. Your feelings are liars. The Bible's very clear, though, that those chains have been broken. So you're not waiting to be set free. You've been set free, and you don't believe it. Maybe you change your prayer from this. God, please free me from this sin. Maybe you instead pray this. God, thank you for freeing me from this sin. Help me believe it because I still love my sin more than you, obviously. This text is saying that it, it's, you've already been set free from sin. It's, it's already happened. You're not waiting to be set free from sin. You just don't believe you're free. Imagine for a second that you are a slave in the 1800s, right after the Civil War. So the Civil War is over, the Emancipation Proclamation has gone out, and you have no more chains on your wrist, but you're still working out on the plantation. And I come up to you and I say, why are you still working on the plantation, and you say, well, I I still feel like I'm a slave. I say, I know know you feel that way. I know that was your old life, but look at your wrist. There's no more shackles. Walk off the plantation. I can't. This is all I know. I feel like I'm a slave. I have to say, listen, then what has to happen is your mind has to be renewed, and you have to keep focusing on the fact that you're free, so therefore you actually walk off the plantation and walk in freedom. I think many of us are carrying around broken chains because they feel enslaving, Despite the fact that the Bible will say, stop trusting your feelings. There's a way that seems right to a man that leads to death. And it encourages us to walk in this freedom. Verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead... Let me, let me go back and just pause real quick on verse 8. It says, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live again with him. That is probably talking about the resurrection again. Verse 8 is parallel to verse 5, okay? The idea is you will one day be raised physically, bodily, but there is a sense in which by looking at that truth in verse 8, it's supposed to change the way you live now. You'll physically one day be raised, but spiritually, you're already resurrected. Spiritually, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. So both of those things are true. Look at verse 9, 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What do verses 9 and 10 mean? There's a lot of language there. There's a lot of theology there. Let me just try to unpack it, okay? Mankind has three huge enemies. Mankind has three big enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Those are the biggest three enemies against mankind, sin, death, and Satan, okay? You see all three of those enemies in the Garden of Eden. You see the serpent who tricks the, the, the man and the woman, and they sin, and that sin leads to death. You see all three of those enemies in the book of Revelation being destroyed. The enemy is cast into the lake of fire. Death itself is killed. Death itself is cast into the lake of fire, and sin is removed. There's no sin allowed in the new Jerusalem. That's the idea. So those are the three big enemies of mankind, and those are the three big enemies who will one day ultimately be defeated. What this text is saying, though, is when you destroy one of these enemies, the other ones fall, okay? Imagine that you have a bridge with three pillars, and you knock down one of those pillars, the whole bridge falls down, okay? What's going on here is in Jesus' death, he conquers sin. We're forgiven for sin. God's wrath is poured out. There's no more uh, wrath towards those who know Christ. And when there's no more sin, it conquers sin's ugly twin sister death, which is why the resurrection happens right after sin has been paid for. Sin is paid for. Death no longer has mastery, and so Jesus is raised conquering death. And those things together conquer the devil. When there's no more sin against you, what can the devil accuse you of? So by this one powerful act of the death and resurrection of Christ, he conquers sin, death, and the devil for humanity. He is victorious. He will never die again. Now, if that logic's a little hard to follow, I've created a little uh, logical step of where we are in Paul's argument up to this point. We're going to put it up on the screens. Four steps. The first is this. I think we're going to put it on the screen. It's coming. There it is. Nailed it. I'm going to pay you an extra $10 in volunteer dollars uh, for that. Step one. Christ died conquering sin and death and was raised to new life. That's what Paul's been talking about. Step two, you are united to Christ, so what is true of him is true of you. If he's died and been raised, you've died to the mastery of sin and you'll be raised in Christ. Step three, you have been freed from the enslaving power of sin and have been given a new identity in Christ. And then step four is what we're about to see in verse 11, so be what you are in Christ. So be what you are in Christ. Let's look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, I've got a lot to say here. This is the so what of this passage. Most of the Bible doesn't have an application like go do this. Most of the Bible is just something you're supposed to know. Here we're given a direct command. This is what is called in theology the indicative imperative, okay? Let me explain what both of those literary terms are. An indicative sentence is just a normal statement. My name is Zach. I have hair you know, whatever it is. Those are just indicative statements. Here is a chair. That's an an indicative, okay? It's just a normal statement of fact. An imperative is a command. Run, jump, come over here, stop doing that, okay? What New Testament scholars will point out is constantly in Paul's letters, he doesn't just say this, do better actions. He gives you the indicative, he gives you the theology, and then he gives you the imperative in light of that. Why are we at Parkway so big on theology? Why do we do theological quipping? Why do we use big words? Why do we walk line by line through the Bible? Because you can't change people's actions by just asking them to change their actions. You have to give them the theology first. That's what Paul does. He doesn't just say live better. He says because you've died in Christ, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Okay. Notice there's there's two sides of that coin. You consider yourself dead to sin. But that would just make you neutral. You don't just consider that. You also consider yourself alive to God in Christ, okay? The term here that's used when it says here in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves, that term consider is the Greek term "legizomai." It's the same term that was used of the way God thinks of you in Romans 3, that God reckons us or considers us to be righteous. So here's what this text is saying, ready? Your thoughts about you should mirror God's thoughts about you. God sees you as 100% righteous. Do you see yourself as 100% righteous? He's reckoned you. He's considered you that way. Do you consider yourself that way? God sees you as forgiven. Do you see yourself as forgiven? You are not allowed to see yourself in a way that God doesn't see you. If God forgives you, you can't not forgive yourself. If God says you're perfect, you can't see yourself as, as broken and sinful and evil in his sight. Yes, we commit practical sins. Yes, we commit sins day to day. But our status before God is righteous. God reckons your faith as righteousness. Do, you, do your thoughts follow his? Do you reckon yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? That's what this text is saying, okay? Now, I want to give you something here that's really important. This text is saying the way you grow in holiness begins with something you think about, okay? I want to show you this, uh, this little thing. I want to give you four H's as a preacher. Ready? Head, heart, hands, habitat. Okay? Let me explain what this is. This is really important. This is the flow of how you grow in holiness. This is the flow of how you grow in sanctification. Okay? It goes in this order. Head, heart, hands, habitat. That's how it happens. Okay? You will do and you will become like what you think about the most. Nobody talks to you more than you. What do you tell yourself all day? This is the flow. You learn correct doctrine, correct theology, you learn about the gospel, that's head, okay? You learn it, you know it. You then believe it in your heart, okay? That's heart. That then affects your actions, that's hands, and your actions then affect the community around you. That's habitat. Do you see how that flow goes? Learn correct doctrine, believe correct doctrine, practice correct doctrine, transform the world by correct doctrine. Do you see the flow of that? Now listen, this is really important. What everybody wants to do is short-circuit this process. They say, we just want to change the world around us. We just want to change our culture. We just want to reach the poor. We just want to do whatever. And what they do is they just start with Habitat, but they haven't done head, heart, or hands, and so that lasts for a few years, and then it fizzles out, and there's no change. Or people want to change their actions, change the hands. I want to stop sinning so much. I want to stop being enslaved to this. I want to stop doing this, so I'm just going to try to will myself to change my actions. Well, you've short circuited the process. You've skipped head and heart. Or people want to change their heart. I wish I loved God more. I wish I hated my sin more. Listen, you're not transformed by the renewing of your heart. You're transformed by, quote, the renewing of your mind. This is where it starts. The battlefield is in the mind and it begins here. What are you thinking about all day? Are you considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God? Or are you thinking anxious thoughts? Guess what? If you think anxious thoughts all day, you're going to be anxious. If you think lustful thoughts all day, you're going to be lustful. If you think instead, though, that you're loved in the gospel all day, you're going to walk around like you're loved in the gospel. It begins here. You don't transform your heart by trying to transform your heart. You don't transform your actions by trying to transform your hands. You don't transform the community by trying to transform your habitat. You're transformed by, quote, the renewing of your mind. Whatever you think about all day is what you will do, and it is what will affect others around you. Let me give you some examples of how this plays out practically. If you are driving down the road— and you see a billboard with a scantily clad woman on it, and that thought hits you of lust, okay? What you have to do in that moment is you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That lustful thought will hit you, and it will say, you must commit me, think about me, go home and look at pornography, you should be really disappointed with your wife, blah, 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 and all those thoughts will go through your head, and you have to stop and you have to say, that's not true. I know it feels enslaving, but it's not true. I've died to that sin. There's more joy found in Christ than illicit sex. Or when I'm walking throughout the day and I have an anxious thought hit me, I have a thought that says, Zach, think about hell. You're going to go to hell. You're not a Christian. No one even likes you. Why are you even doing ministry? You're such a hypocrite. When that thought hits me, I can't stop the thought from hitting me. I can't stop the phone from ringing. I can only not pick up the phone. I have to stop and I have to say, no, that's not true. I've died to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ. Those thoughts are not true. And I have to renew my mind with the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Or maybe you're going throughout the day, maybe you're a lady, and you get hit by some sort of uh, thought of insecurity, body image issues. I wish I looked like her. I wonder about this. I hate the way that I, why do, whatever that is, you have to stop, and you have to take that thought captive, and you have to say, no, 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 no. I've died to sin. The Bible says my value is not found in what Hollywood would say my value is in. My value is found in Christ. That's where my value is found. Or you get hit with a thought of divisiveness. You get hit with a thought of unforgiveness. You think of somebody you don't like or whatever, and you start thinking, I don't like that person. I don't like that church. Why did they say this? Maybe they don't like me. You start assuming the worst of people. You have to stop and say, no, 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 no. Divisiveness is a sin. I've died to sin, and I'm alive to God in Christ. That is how the battle is won. That's how the battle is won. Do you you have five more minutes? Five more minutes to get into something? For some reason we think that we will just wake up one day and won't struggle with any of the things we struggle with. So if you've struggled with lust your whole life, you keep praying for God to take it away, then you wake up and you just assume one day he's gonna take it away. Or you struggle with anxiety and you just assume you're gonna wake up and God's gonna take it away. That's not the way he said he's going to take it away. The way he said he's going to take it away is by you considering those lies as lies and renewing your mind. Would you expect to just wake up one day and be able to hit a major league curveball? No, you'd have to practice it. Would you just be able to wake up one day and be able, if you've never played golf, to be a scratch golfer? No, you'd have to practice it. Why is virtue any different? You see, the way that you're going to get out of whatever habitual sin you're struggling with is not just by magically waking up one day. Yes, I think God can do that. There are people I know where they've struggled with something and the struggle's just taken away. For the vast majority though, what God does instead is has them practice renewing their mind. That is the freedom. First time you play a flute, you're terrible at it. First time you play baseball, Or a hundredth time you play baseball, you're terrible at it, okay? But the more you practice it, the better you get. Well, Zach, I'm not good at not being anxious. I know you've been practicing unrighteousness for 30 years. You have to now start practicing renewing your mind. And maybe you're not good at it. You're not good at it the first time you play an instrument, but you practice, practice, practice putting sin to death, practice renewing your mind, practice thinking gospel thoughts and pushing out those other evil thoughts. That is how the victory is won. Most of the time, it's not magically taken away. It's you putting it to death because God's trying to teach you about something. He's trying to teach you about renewing your mind, okay? Remember, the enemy can't condemn you. You've already been justified. All the enemy can do is scream his lies louder. The Bible whispers, two plus two is four. And the enemy screams, two plus two is five. And there's a tendency because the voice is louder from the enemy to assume that it's more true, but it's not. But it's not. Here's my last thing for you. How do you renew your mind? How do you grow in these things? How do you consider yourselves dead uh, to sin and alive to God? Here's how it is, ready? The way you grow in holiness is by knowing that God loves you even if you don't grow in holiness. The way you grow in sanctification, righteous living, is by going back to the truth of your justification. If I try really hard just not to sin, I'll commit sins all day. You know why? Because my thoughts are on not Jesus. My thoughts are on making not sinning my Savior. Instead, your thoughts have to be, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, I've gone from being as red as scarlet to as white as snow, it's done, there's no condemnation for me, and the more you think that, the more you find yourself sinning less. The more I think about Christ and his love, the less I naturally sin. The more I, in my own strength, I try to just not sin, the more I sin. Okay? The way we grow in holiness is to realize that God loves you even if you don't grow in holiness. Now, with that in mind, I want the uh, guys who are helping serve communion to go ahead and come on up. Why I pray for us about this text, Father, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for sending Christ. I thank you that we, uh, those of us that know Christ, are in Him. That when we put our faith in Christ and we repented, we uh, uh, were united with Christ's death. We don't have to fear judgment. We've already been judged. We don't have to fear death. We've already died that there will one day be a resurrection and we will see bodily what's already true of us spiritually. And so we just ask for help believing that. In the meantime, we ask that you would protect us from the enemy, that you would protect us from his lies. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.